0: Let's all stand and let's have the men that will come and let's just gather around the altar and take this service to the Lord. Good to have Bill and Cindy home. Bill, come up here and lead us in prayer. And Cindy, that is called the promise. Just happen to think the promise. But anyway, good to have Bill and Cindy home. And let's pray now. Let's give this service to the Lord and let's open our hearts to what the Lord wants to do for us in this service. Bill, we appreciate you.
1: Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you tonight for the privilege of coming back into your presence. And Father, we thank you for, that, for your majesty and for your power. And we thank you, pa- Father, that we form part of your family. Yes. And Father, we pray tonight your special blessing upon this service. Lord, that you'll anoint the ones who sing, the ones who uh, serve in this service tonight. Father, just anoint them and use them. And especially in the preaching of your word, Lord, that you'll anoint your servant tonight. And may Your Word go forth with power and penetrate our hearts and stir us and challenge us and change us for Your honor and for Your glory. Blessing every part of the service. Father, we pray for those who are in need tonight, spiritual need and physical need, and uh, Lord, uh, for the healing of their bodies, if that be the case. Lord, we pray that You'll just uh, do a great work in, in the hearts and lives of Your people tonight because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh. Wow. Wow. choir in this group over here group two is going to be the balcony in the middle and group three is all this side over here we'll sing it in a round don't you sing it two times through and just sing it to him tonight in worship and what you're thinking about adoring him tonight on group one here we go ready go father this group over here. Thank you. You may be seated.
0: Let's let our Awana leaders come forward to present our Awana Awards
2: tonight. While they're coming, some of you probably saw in the bulletin this morning some of the coming uh, events that we have. One of those on that list is November 12th. We're having our Awana Grand Prix. If you've never uh, seen or uh, been part of a Grand Prix, um it's when the kids take a start with a small block of wood carve it and paint it up and make a car and we race it down a track uh this year we're doing that in the fall we did it back in the spring this year we are putting out and formally tonight i'm going to put out a challenge the awana leaders would like to put out a challenge to the church staff We would like to challenge the church staff to build cars and race them on that day. And uh, so that, that's including uh, Brother Ken and Terry and Rick and, and uh, uh, whoever else we might have there wants to be involved, but uh, you guys are hearing it here officially now that we are putting out a challenge. And so this is November 12th, and we'll be telling you more about that. And we'll have boys and girls divisions, and we're even gonna have a Hot hot Wheels divisions for the little kids, so it's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, But we are putting out a challenge to the church staff this year, and we wanna see um, what they can do. Uh, We're the Cubbies, the three and four year old preschoolers, and uh, these young children have um, memorized two verses, and they're earning their hopper patches tonight. Uh, We have Maggie Wood, Caitlin Allen. Savannah Gaffin. Amanda Hickerson. And Colton Corbett. And Colton's gonna say a verse for us tonight.
3: Four five, eight. Well, why we Christ that was
2: this is Gavin Wiley he's one of our first graders he's earning a high Patch. he learned 10 verses and attended Sunday school, Sunday school twice and he has a verse At
3: 1631 believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved At 1631
2: Thompson. She
1: attended uh, three church services and did 22 Bible verses. Our club is the pals, the young men from the third and fourth grade, and tonight we want to honor Ben Haskett. He has finished Bible drill number four in his Brave Handbook. That is completing nine sections, which included memorizing and reciting 16 Bible verses, and answering questions on Jesus' trial, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So tonight he gets his gold arrowhead. Congratulations.
2: We're the guards, 5th and 6th grade girls. I have an award for Sarah Sherwood tonight. I'm oh, sure I do. Yeah. Okay. Sarah has recited 22 Bible verses, and uh, she has a Sunday school a certain amount of times, and she's getting her anchor patch. And Reagan Smith, she re, she did the same thing, and she's getting her anchor patch, and she's also our guard of the month. We are the pioneers, the fifth uh, and sixth grade boys. We have four young men here to recognize tonight. Uh, these young men have, in two weeks, completed their interest book, which is called the Beacon. Uh, this consists of uh, consistent club attendance learning and reciting the motto, nine Bible verses and references, 23 definitions, uh, the WANA theme song, and place the American flag, and place the WANA flag. So I'd like to recognize all these boys for a great effort tonight.
0: These kids amaze me, all the verses they're able to learn and different things like that. That's a blessing. And I'll take the challenge. Listen, man, just get me the... Specs, I thought about when, uh, when I pastored in, in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, uh, some of the uh, folks that worked for Junior Johnson, they went to the church, body man, different things, and, and I hung around the garage there quite a bit. I believe I can get called Junior, and he'll give me some wind tunnel testing time, a few things like that. So I take the challenge. Just, just let me know, and we'll take care of it. Let's let our ushers come forward to receive her offering and encourage you to be faithful in your giving tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the Awana. We thank you for our Awana leaders. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for the boys and girls that are coming and what they are learning and the truth of God that is being hid in their heart. Bless now our giving tonight. It's through our giving that we're able to have these kind of things and these ministries. So bless the giving of the people of God tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: As the choir comes down, you shake hands. We've got visitors with us tonight. I want you to get out. Make everyone welcome. Make sure you shake the hand of the choir members that come by. Let them know you appreciate what they're doing. Keep shaking hands. Turn over to the songbook, page 283 if you need a songbook. 283. Just keep shaking hands. We'll be ready to go another verse, 283. For Jesus, your King, there's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily His praises to sing? There's wonderful power. Put four powers in, four powers. There is power, 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 one working in the of the life There is power. Power in the blood of the Lamb, there is power, 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 to power, work in the precious blood of the land. Thank you. You may be seated. Great.
0: I'm glad there's power in the blood, aren't you? And praise the Lord. It's a joy to have Michael Hart with us tonight. He's uh, going to Columbia the Macedonia world, Baptist missions, and he's going to come take just a few moments and tell you about what the Lord is doing in his life, and then at the end of the service, he's going to come and share with us some slides. So let's welcome Brother Hart to our services tonight.
4: Yes, I want to thank everyone here, and I want to thank your pastor for allowing me to come here tonight. I would like to say it's a privilege always to be in God's house among God's people to be able to share uh, things of the lord especially from god's word uh, i want to tell you a little bit about myself i'm a native of this particular area I was born here born on erlanger hospital but was raised in hickson tennessee the area of uh, middle valley i was uh, in a different denomination whenever i got saved as a young boy at the age of seven and then i got away from the lord as a teenager got into some awful bad things but the lord brought me out of that you might say he whipped me out of it <laughs> and he did he really did. But I'm glad he did because, you know, he uh, taught me a lot of good lessons there and uh, things I'll never forget. But God's grace is good, isn't it? You know, one day whenever I was 21 years old, I passed the cemetery and God spoke to my heart. He said, you know, I could have took your life a long time ago. You know, it's one thing I want to always tell the young people is, you know, you reap what you sow. And there's no guarantee that God's grace is going to take you where it took me. I mean, you know. God for every right should have took my life, but he didn't the way I was living and he allowed me to live and uh whenever he brought me out of that that I was into, I was involved in drugs, I told him, I said, Lord, I'll do anything you want me to. I passed a cemetery and whenever he spoke to me there and that was twenty one years ago. Now, it took me several years, about ten years ago I left that particular denomination I was in. And uh, the Lord has allowed me to go through different steps to prepare now as a missionary, open up doors for me. um, And um, one of those doors was to be able to go down to Puerto Rico about five years ago. I went down there and didn't know much Spanish, but I had to learn real quick. And uh, what it was is that my classes were in Spanish. I I took Bible school in Spanish. I'd never taken formal Bible school. And um, I worked down there with some new missionaries, For about three different uh, years as I went to school, each one, for about uh, a year apiece in three different areas of Puerto Rico. And then last year, which was, uh, the last year I was down there, actually 1999, from about October to October, I took a fellow's church while he went on further. I'll be showing you some slides later of the country of Colombia. But I want to be able to share a little bit with you about Colombia. That's the country the Lord's called me to. I could tell you a lot about Puerto Rico. But I went to Puerto Rico to prepare to be able to go to Columbia. I am very grateful, and I do mean very grateful to the people of Puerto Rico for the way they were good to me, to allow me to go down there and just make some friends that are like family to me. But I wanted to be able to share with you something about Columbia. Columbia is a country with 39 million souls. Now, out of those 39 million souls, there are about 25, as I know, independent Baptist works down there. There may be more. But you're talking about a country where there are very, very few people that are hearing the gospel like what you and I would hear tonight. I want to share something with you that I recently found on the Internet. I go digging all I can for information. But uh, this fellow, his name was Anthony Gazette. He called himself the Latin America watchdog. He gives this story. He, He said things usually get back to normal after a series of killings. Only the stain of blood remains. Oftentimes, dead bodies are not even claimed. They are removed to prevent an epidemic, not to give them a decent burial. Colombians are often seen jumping over dead bodies, staining their shoes with the blood of the murdered ones. Such is life in Colombia's rural areas. This is war, and war has no heart, yet the word God surfaces in every other sentence uttered by most Colombians. Ironically, Colombians flood their local parish at a steady pace. Catholicism dominates their lives. Yet life, which is the most precious gift given to all humans by the very same God they venerate, enjoys only half-hearted respect in this Andean nation. As one farmer so eloquently put it to me, we are told that that the more we suffer, the closer we get to heaven when we die. Silly us. When are we going to accept the fact that heaven is here on earth for the rich people that has everything, And hell is for us poor that have nothing, not even a decent government, to protect us from the corrupt politicians and killers rampaging our countryside. The only thing that awaits us after death is the disintegration of our body. Victims we are of a religious belief that bear no living proof except to make us ignorant before the wise and the mighty. Anyway, the commentary um, person says, In the meantime, the war continues to fill Columbia's burial grounds grounds run by the church that has a burial fee beyond the reach of most Colombians, and he asked ask a question he says is there a connection here you know i truly believe there is i mean you're looking at a 200 billion a dollar a year industry in the illegal drug drug trade and and i really do feel like the richest church on earth would kind of have a little bit of income from that but um I want to share with you something from the Word of God. If you want to, you can just turn there. I'll be making reference to it in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 30. and just basically want to tell you a little bit about this story. I don't have time to get into detail. But in this particular chapter, chapter 30, if you have time to go home and read it, 1 Samuel, it's something I've been using to share with people. A similar situation as to what's going on in Columbia. Now, basically, what you've got is David was being persecuted by King Saul. So David, he goes off, and he says, You know, I'm going to go stay in with these Philistines. I'm going to go see if I can find refuge there. But, you know, David didn't inquire of the Lord, He didn't inquire of the Lord before he went off to the camp of the Philistines, and he encounters trouble. And what happens is that he goes off to the northern part, and while he goes off to the northern part, uh, there's a battle that they're preparing for up there. In other words, God is judging the nation of Israel. They they decided they wanted him an earthly king, and they got him an ungodly one. And the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. He had disobeyed God and he even went to a witch after God wouldn't answer him. He got to the point where God would not even answer him. He wanted to kill David. So David, off over there with the enemies, the Philistines, he had to show him a little bit of loyalty, supposedly, and they gave him this place called Siklag to live. And, you know, whenever he got there, he had to clean the place up. There were God's enemies there. There were the Amalekites and these other groups that were folks that hated God's people. Well, what happens is that he goes off and he becomes the rear guard for this Philistine army. But you see, they didn't care a whole lot for him. They didn't really care what happened to his family. And they didn't really even believe it was sincere. But while he was off trying to impress these people that probably didn't care anything about him in the first place, along comes these Amalekites. They're aggravated. They're they're agitated like a bunch of bees, you know. So they come after God's people there, where David has his wife and he has his family and kids. And what we see here in this chapter is they burn the cities with fire. They go off in the kidnap. David's own family. You know, that's a lot like what's happening in Columbia. And then what happens is that they weep whenever they see the city that's burning, the smoke that's coming up from it, knowing that their family's gone, been kidnapped. They just start crying. And it says here in this chapter that they cry until they cannot cry anymore. And you know, that's exactly the kind of pain that Columbia is going through right now. I wish I could tell you it was pretty. I really do. I I wish I could say, hey, everything's just fine down there. I would be lying. But here in this story with David, we find out what he did. is that David knew the way to get a hold of God. And you see, he called on a priest. And the priest called on God and he gave an answer. And the Lord delivered. They recovered from that. They found out where the enemy's camp was, and they recovered the spoils. Had a good ending to the story. And one good thing it says here about David, in uh, verse 6 it says, But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And you know, whenever you don't have anywhere to go, whenever things look hopeless, you've still got God. One thing I want to share with you, as long as there is God, there is hope. As long as there is God, there is hope. And David knew that. And that's what we see in our story. And it's sad that in Columbia, they can call on their priests. They can call on their statues. They can call on their pagan deities. They may name them saints somebody. But you know what? They're not going to answer them. They're not going to tell them the right way to go. They're not going to tell them how to get out of that situation they're in. But if someone wanna go there, share the gospel with them. Somebody can get a hold of God for them. If churches can pray for them. And somebody. Other people not just me. Will get the burden and want to go. People want to send missionaries there. Say well you know I will get involved. Whenever people get a hold of God. He's going to bring the enemies down. He can do that. And that's what I want you to do. Just In this story there were people. that They were, they were too weak to go out to the battle at first. It says they stayed with the stuff. At the end they were dividing the spoils because they had the heart and the right place. Now God may may not call you to go to Columbia, but he does call you to be sold out to him.
5: Went to sleep one night, never here to awake again, but everything was all right between her and him. So she awoke in heaven's courtyard. The angels gathered round her, took her by the hand, serenaded by
3: angels
5: up to the throne. angels. by praises. to city of brilliant life that's waiting for me. But this old mind cannot conceive, so I Serenaded by angels up to the throne, serenaded by angels, finally surrounded by praises to
0: Praise the Lord. Let's open our Bible to the book of Joshua, chapter 2. The book of Joshua, chapter 2. How many of you tonight have had a life changing experience? Would you raise your hand? A life changing experience. One of the things that we do in faith, and we have three people in a team that go out, and one is responsible for giving what we call a Sunday school testimony, another is responsible for giving what we call an evangelistic testimony. And then, of course, there is the leader. But in the evangelistic testimony, which lasts about two minutes, three minutes at the most, uh, we talk about a pre conversion experience and then a post conversion experience. And we bridge the two by saying, I had a life changing experience. And I've had a life changing experience. I don't know about you, and it happened many years ago, 1972. And I hadn't got over it. And God forbid I ever get over it. Amen. I had a life-changing experience. Are you glad you had one? Let's stand to our feet, please. And I want you to look at a wonderful example of a life-changing experience. Joshua chapter two, we're going through the book of Joshua. And of course, I am not going to go through verse by verse through Joshua as we did the book of First Corinthians, though I will cover uh, the stories in the book. But I want us to look tonight, chapter two, and I want us to think about this thought: the red line that replaced the red light. The red line that replaced the red light. The Bible said in Joshua the son of Nun sent out of Shittim two men to spy, secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and they came and came into a harlot's house. Name Rahab, and lodge there. Now skip down to verse 18. Joshua chapter 2, verse 18. The Bible said, Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, which thou didst let us down by. And thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's house household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever shall go Out of the doors of thy house into the street His blood shall be upon his head And we will be guiltless And whosoever shall be with thee in the house His blood shall be on our head If any hand be upon him And if thou utter this our business Then we'll be quite quit of thine thine oath Which thou hast made us to swear And she said according unto your words so be it And she sent them away and they departed And she bound the scarlet line in the window. You may be seated. Let's pray. And then tonight we'll look at this wonderful example in the Old Testament of someone that had a life-changing experience. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we gather here tonight with grateful hearts, eternally grateful. Father, there is a tendency to forget where you found us. And there's a tendency on our part to forget what we were when you came to us. But dear Lord Jesus, we ask you tonight to once again remind us of where you have brought us from and what you did in our life when you saved us by your grace. And God, don't ever let us get over the transforming power of Jesus Christ that has been experienced in our life as a believer. We thank you and we bless your name for what you have done for us. Now make this example in the Old Testament, this wonderful illustration fresh to our hearts and remind us tonight of what you have done for us and how you have changed our lives. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray and ask these things, amen. I'm sure tonight that everyone in this room is very familiar with the name of John Newton. He wrote so many songs Of course, we're familiar with his song, Amazing Grace, one of my favorite songs. Nobody ever sings it, and maybe some of you don't even know, but he wrote a great hymn called How Tedious and Tasteless the Hours When Jesus No Longer I See. But he wrote so many wonderful songs. But I think of the life of John Newton. He lost his mother at the age of seven. He went to sea at the age of 11, eventually sailing to Africa, and he said, when I went to Africa, I went to Africa that I might be free to sin to my heart. And that John Newton did. He was a deserter from the Navy and flogged until the blood ran down his back. He became involved in the atrocities of the African slave trade. And he even went so low that he became a slave to a slave. He became a slave to a slave woman who made him depend for his food upon the crust that she tossed under her table. But on March the 10th, 1748, on board a ship that was about to founder at sea, he cried out to God for mercy. And that night, God's amazing grace saved the soul of John Newton. And in a little town called Olney, England, just behind the Olney parish church, there is the grave and the marker on the grave of John Newton. And the epitaph on the marker reads like this. John Newton, clerk. Once an infidel and in libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. No wonder John Newton was able to sing or say, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But the simple truth is tonight, many of us in this room can testify to God's amazing grace. Many of us can testify how we were in sin. And how we lived a rough, wicked, immoral life. But God in His mercy and God in His grace saved us. And tonight we testify that there was this marvelous change in our life. And we experienced, as I said a moment ago, a life changing experience, and I am thankful for what he did in my life, and I know that you're thankful for what he did in your life. But here in Joshua chapter 2 is one of the most thrilling examples of the life-changing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. For you find in Joshua chapter 2 that we meet a woman by the name of Rahab, and you'll find in verse 1, we read it just a moment ago, that she was a harlot. Here is a woman that was a prostitute. Here was a woman that sold her body to sin. Here was a woman that lived an immoral life. But yet when you think about Rahab the harlot, you find her in some most unique positions in the New Testament. We meet her as a harlot and a prostitute in Joshua 2. But when you go to Hebrews chapter 11 in that great hall of faith, you'll find in Hebrews chapter 11 that she's listed there as a model of faith. And you'll find that she's listed there as a model and an example to every one of us. You'll also find in James chapter 2 that she's also listed as a model of someone of genuine faith, of the evidence of someone being saved. And there she is used as a model of genuine faith. In the story, I see the terror in her heart. You notice verse 9 of Joshua chapter 2. The Bible said, she said unto the men, talking about the two spies, I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Now, she talked about the terror that was in her heart as well as those in Jericho. She talked about how everybody was scared to death. Her heart was filled with fear. You see, she realized, like many in the city, that doom was just around the corner. They knew the Israelites were on the other side of Jordan, and they knew their objective, and they knew that they would be defeated. You might say she knew that judgment was coming. And when she came to an understanding of her doom, and when she came to an understanding of the nearing wrath of her enemy, she was terrified. There was a fear in her heart about what tomorrow held, and there was a fear in her heart about the future. Now, some of you tonight may remember when the Spirit of God began to deal with you, and you may may remember how the Spirit of God began that work in your heart to bring you to Jesus Christ. He brought you to an understanding. In fact, in verse nine, I find it interesting. She said, "I know." She had come to an understanding of something. She come to an understanding of the danger she was in. She came to an understanding of her condition as it related to the children of Israel and the condition that she was facing. She knew that. And you remember when the Spirit of God brought you to an understanding? And the Spirit of God brought you to the point where you realized your own condition and you realized your own fate? I remember that Sunday morning back in 1972. And I can honestly say this this morning. That was the first time in my life on that Sunday morning when I ever really understood that if I died, I'd go to hell. But that Sunday morning, I knew. And when the invitation was given, I knew I was lost. And I knew that I was a sinner. And I knew that if I died, I'd go to hell. And I knew that the judgment of God was in my future if I didn't do anything about it and do something about it. There was that convicting work of God, the fear that it brought in our heart. Some of you remember it when you worried about going to hell and you were afraid you were going to die and go to hell. You remember as a kid and you couldn't sleep at night because of the fear of what the future held. What am I talking about? I'm talking about that convicting work of God that brings us to an understanding of our need. It's a lot like Uncle Buddy Robinson. Uncle Buddy, that old Nazarene preacher, he said he went to hear this Methodist preacher preach. He said he preached on heaven until he wanted to go there. And then he preached on hell. And Uncle Buddy said, I thought I was going there. And you can remember when the Spirit of God came to you and the Spirit of God brought you to that understanding. And it might have been you thought you were going to hell. I've heard people testify before. I knew if I didn't come that Sunday morning, if I didn't go down that Sunday morning, I would have died and went to hell. What is that? It's the convicting work of God that brings us to Jesus Christ. You remember? Do you remember the convicting work of God that brought you to Christ? There was the terror in her heart. I think about a story I read about G. Campbell Morgan. He told the story about a meeting they was holding and about a man that he invited to the inquiry room. They would take him back to a little room, and there's where they would deal with him. They called called it the inquiry room. And he said to the man, And he invited the man back, and the man said to Morgan, he said, can I be saved without going in there? And G. Campbell Morgan said that when a man begins to ask such a question, he said, there's only one way to deal with him." He said, I looked at him and said, no, I don't think you can. And the fellow said, why? Is salvation in the inquiry room? And G. Campbell Morgan said, no, it's in God. But as long as you sit here and want to dictate terms to God, you are proven that you have not got to the end of yourself, and God cannot save you until you get to the end of yourself. And the man looked at him and said, if I can't be saved without going in that room, I'll go to hell. And he left the service. On the final night of that meeting, before the invitation was given, that same man came down the aisle and told G. Campbell Morgan he wanted to be saved. And G. Campbell Morgan looked at him and said, I thought you said you wanted to go to hell. And he said, Preacher Morgan, I've been in hell all week long. That's what I'm talking about, conviction. Here was a woman with fear in her heart. Fear about the future. Fear of the coming doom. Fear of the coming destruction. You see, there is always that work of God to bring us to a point where we realize we are lost and realize that if we died in our sins, we'd go to hell. The fear that it puts into our heart. But you see something else about this convicting work. Not only do you see the terror in her heart, but notice in verse 10 and 11, the testimony she heard. There was a fear that filled her heart. She is afraid she would be among those doomed in the days to come. And she didn't want to die. She didn't want to face the destruction that was coming. She was terrified. But there was a reason why. Notice verse 10, and I find this interesting. In verse 10, she said, For we have heard, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt, and when ye when what ye did unto the kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sion and Og, with whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man, because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now look at it again. Now I want you to notice something interesting here. I want you to notice the emphasis that she puts upon the children of Israel and the two spies. She said in verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt. And what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites. They were on the other side Jordan, Sion and Og, whom Ye utterly destroy. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now, why is it this woman now is under conviction? Why is it now she is coming to God? What is it that has brought her to understand? She said, I know. What is it that has brought her to an understanding that she is doomed? What is it that has brought her to an understanding? She needs deliverance. I'll tell you what it was. One of the things you find in verse 10 and 11 is that God had used the testimony of the people of God and the power of God they were experiencing in their life. There was something wonderful going on in the lives of the people of God. There was something miraculous going on in the lives of the people of God. And she heard about it. And she heard the testimony of what God was doing in the children of Israel and she knew she needed something from God. I want to say to you tonight, one of the most powerful sermons that is preached is in the lives of the people of God. One of the most powerful sermons that is preached out here in the world is in the lives of the people of God. I think about this dead day in which we live. Now, I'm a Baptist. You know that. I'm a Baptist from top of my head to the sole of my feet. But I think about people come to church on Sunday morning, and they come to church, and it is as dead as peckerwood. And you know what peckerwood is. That's an old dead tree stump out somewhere. But they come to services on Sunday morning, and church is as dead as peckerwood. There is joy in the singing, there's no life in the services, there's no fire in the preaching and people said like Colijah, the wooden Indian with an expression on their faces that would make you think they were winged on pickle juice rather than infamile. and you wonder why the world is not moved I'm going to tell you what this world needs it needs to see God on a place and it needs to see God in a place. We're not going to bring people to God through good music we're not going to bring people to God through nice buildings. The only way you'll bring people to God is when this world sees God in our lives and God doing something in our lives. I tell you what we need in the churches is just to come and let God be in the place. God on us, God in us, God through us. That is what I bring people to God. Can I get an amen there? And I'll tell you something else. People around us, on the, not on the jobs, they work around people that are religious And they work around church members and people that go this church and people go that church. And they're around church people, religious people all the time. And that's an everyday thing. But what is often rare is to be around somebody that's just excited about being saved and somebody that's just in love with Jesus Christ and someone in whom God is doing something in their life. And they're around people like this all the time. Uh, They're religious, but they're not around people that are just full of God and God is doing something in their life. I'll tell you something. One of the ways God, one of the things God uses to bring people to an understanding of their need is they see something in our life that makes them realize they don't have something and they need what we've got in our lives. Can I get an amen? That's why when y'all come to church on Sunday morning, you all to come to church and praying and for God to bless. That's why you ought to be over here at 920 on Sunday morning joining us in prayer. That's why you ought to come and believe in God and trust in God and not just sitting there like knots on the log going through a routine. But, oh, God, would you do something? It was what God did in the lives of his people that got her attention. Made her realize, buddy, I am doomed if something doesn't happen in my life. I mentioned Uncle Buddy Robinson a moment ago. I would agree with all of his theology or the way that he put things and what he meant by the way that he put things. But Uncle Buddy Robertson is a most, was a most unique individual to me. And I've read everything I could by him, read some of his sermons. I just love Uncle Buddy for just the way he put things. I've told you this before. He's just a unique fellow. He went to the doctor. He's having trouble hearing out of one ear. The doctor checked him and said, Uncle Blair, there's not a thing wrong with you but old age. He said, I don't understand that. He said, this ear was born the same time this one was. Now, hear good out of this one. But he was a unique fellow. And he had a, just a down-home way of putting things. And he told about in one of his sermons about the service that he was in. He was under deep conviction. He had heard that preacher preach on hell. He said he preached on hell till I thought I was going to hell. And said for days, he's under deep conviction, but he said he was sitting in a service one night and said the preacher asked people to go out in the crowd and find somebody that wasn't saved and pray for them. And oh, Uncle Buddy said this beautiful old mother with white hair and the finest face you ever saw came in my direction. He said that she looked like you could take a rag and wipe heaven off of her face. He said, she went down before me on her knees and said, she put my hands up on my bare knees where they were sticking through my dirty overhauls, and she prayed for me as loud as she could. He said, as she was praying, the devil said, if you don't give her a cussing, she'll never quit. But he said, he see, he said seemed the Lord said, don't you cuss this woman. She's praying for your lost soul. And he said, then the devil seemed to say to me, if you don't get up and run, they're going to get you. No Uncle Buddy said, but beloved, God came on the scene. He said, I tried to get up, but I could not get off the bench. He said, it seemed as though I were glued to it while the devil hissed in my face. But he said, that beautiful mother prayed louder, and she prayed louder, and said she finally began to shout, Said she got up off her knees and she commenced to beat me on the head until I thought it was going to sink through the ground into the pit. Said that old mother shouted as long as she wanted to and said when she finally arose, she said she looked like she's half glorified. No, Uncle Buddy, it was in that service that he got saved. I'm telling you. When this old world sees some folks that look like they're half glorified and see something in our life where they can take a rag and wipe heaven off our face, then it'll convince this old world that what we have got is real and what we have is what they need. I'm talking about the testimony of people that God is doing something in their life. That's why here when we come, I don't want to be an old dead formal cemetery. Oh, no, if you like all that high-strung stuff and people sitting around with their eyebrows raised in some heavenly tones, then head on out to the funeral chapel, the cemetery somewhere. I come to church, I want to meet God. And I want God to be in the presence of our gathering here. Why? Because when people see God in our lives and hear of what God is doing in our lives, the Spirit of God will use that in a convicting way. There was the conviction that preceded her conversion. She said, I know. But look at the second thing about her salvation. Not only do I see the conviction that preceded her salvation, but there is the confession that produced her salvation. Now she began to realize, she said, I am doomed that if something don't happen for me, I am doomed. The children of Israel are coming. God has given them the land. Even Jericho, were are his. We are doomed for destruction. Something's got to happen. She realizes that, but she comes to that point that she makes a wonderful confession that produced salvation in her life. Now, here's the question. The Spirit of God began to deal with us. The Spirit of God got our attention one day, made us think we was dying and going to hell swung our soul out over hell. and We got so terrified and so bothered that we had to do something about it. We knew we were lost, knew we were dying, and would die and go to hell, so we came. Now, what did we have to do to be saved with the grace of God? Look at two things she did. For one thing, she accepted the God of salvation. I think about what Romans ten nine said, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart that God hath raised Jesus from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's exactly what she did. Hebrews eleven thirty one said, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believe not. Look in verse 11 of our text again. She said to them in the latter part of verse 11, For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. You know what she's doing? She's accepting the God of Israel as her God. She is confessing, I believe that he is God. I believe that he is the God. And she is saying to them, I am accepting your God as my God. You know why we're saved tonight? You know how we got in the family of God? You know how we become children of God? It wasn't because of who we were. It wasn't because of what we had to offer you know why we're saved tonight? It's because somewhere in our life we made a simple act of faith in Jesus Christ. We trusted Him and accepted Him as our Lord and Savior. That's all to it. And say, so that's easy. Aren't you glad it is? Amen. She accepted the God of salvation, but notice something else in verse 12. She not only accepted the God of salvation, but she asked for the salvation of God. She accepted and acknowledged the God of salvation, but in verse 12, she asked for the salvation of God. She said, now, th- now, now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that ye will also show kindness unto my Father's house and give me a true token. She acknowledged God as being God. She said, "Your God is God. I accept that." And now in verse 12, she says, "And I want to be saved. I know the Lord has given you the city. I want to be delivered. She is asking for salvation." You remember doing that? Romans 10:13, "For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." That's what we did. That is the confession that produced salvation in our life. But look at the third thing in the story. There is now the conviction that preceded her salvation and the confession that produced her salvation. But thirdly, look at the concern that proved her salvation. This is what James 2.25 says. Jot this reference down. James 2.25 said, Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and had sent them out another way? Now, when James talked about Rahab being justified by works, he is not saying that she was saved because of her works. He's just got through talking about faith without works is dead. Or if I may put it another way, what James is talking about, James chapter 2, is that if if you claim to be a child of God, faith, and there's no evidence of that faith, then that faith is dead. He's talking about showing his faith. In fact, he said, I believe it was in verse, uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 18 of James chapter 2. I believe that's right. He said, I will show thee my faith by my works." He said, I want to show you that I'm saved. I show you that I have been justified. He's not saying that a man is saved by works, but he's saying that a saved man is justified by works or works becomes the evidence of his faith. Or in other words, let me put it this way. If you've been saved, there's some evidence in your life that you've been saved. If you have been born again, it's kind of like having the measles. If you got them, they're going to pop out on you somewhere. And if you've ever been truly born again, there's going to be some evidence that you've been born again. James talks about it, James 2, verse 25. It's the fact that she hid the spies and spared the spies and sent them out another way. He said that was evidence that she had been born again or that was the works that proved that her faith was real. I look in Joshua 2, and I find even more evidence. Know the fact that she hid the spies and saved their life. But I find also something else in Joshua 2 that is good evidence that she has been now born again. For example, notice the concern that she had. And you notice in verse 12 and 13, the desire she had for the salvation of her family. Look in verse 12. The Bible said, No sooner has she declared that God is God in heaven above and earth beneath. She said, I pray you swear unto me by the Lord since I have shown you kindness that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. And verse 13, And that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. The first thing she wanted to do, the first thing after she confessed and accepted the God of Israel, the very next thing that you see in her life, she's concerned about her family, knowing the same God and experiencing the same salvation she's about to experience. She comes and she's now concerned about her family. She doesn't want her family to be saved or lost. If I may put it this way, what she said is, I want my family to get what I've got. You mean when you first got saved? One of the first things you wanted to do, if you really got saved, one of the first things you wanted to do was to tell somebody about it. And one of the first things, one of the first evidences of your faith in God is that you became concerned about others that did not know Christ. And it usually began with your family. One of the things I see about young converts around here and new converts, they'll come and they'll get saved and it won't be just a matter of two or three weeks, whether it be a teenager or an adult or whatever, they'll say, Brother Ken, preacher, I want you to pray for my mom and she's not saved. I want you to pray for my daddy, he's not saved. I want you to pray for my brother, he's out of church, whatever. I believe one of the evidence of a man that's been saved is one of evidence and proofs and that he's been born again is that he has a concern for his family and concern for other people. I remember the day I got saved. First thing I did, went straight home and told my mom and then went straight up to where we always sit together, always hung around together on Sundays or whatever it was with the teenagers there and went straight to them to tell them that I would got saved. I wanted somebody to know. And one of the things that happened that day, one of my best friends lived right beside me. I went over to his house. I told him I got saved. And I said, I want you to go to church with me tonight. And he went to church with me that night and he got saved on that Sunday night. I mean, praise God. God had transformed my life. I had lifted a heavy burden from sin off my heart that Sunday morning. And I wanted everybody else to know what he'd done for me. That was the evidence. That was none of the desire she had for family salvation. But the directions also, second of all, for the salvation of her family. Look in verse 17. The men said unto her, We will be blameless at this thine oath, which thou hast made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren, all thy father's household, home unto thee. And he went on to say, if you don't do follow our instructions exactly, then then your blood will not be on our hands. But he said, if you follow our directions like we tell you to follow our instructions, then anything happens to you, your blood will be on our hands. In other words, they're giving her directions about what to do. She wants her family to be saved. She has been saved, and one of the evidence that she's been saved, she's concerned about others being saved. And so they give her directions and tell her what to do. And then verse 21 said, And she did according, and she said, According unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away and departed and bound the scarlet line. She began to do what they told her to do. She wanted her family saved, and she began to do whatever it took to get her family saved. I also find one of the evidence of a man that's really been saved, not only does he desire the salvation of others, but he gets involved in trying to get other people saved. And you've seen it. People get saved, and they not only want people to get saved, but they begin trying to invite them to church calling them, going by and seeing them and trying to get them to come, praying for their salvation and witnessing to them and sending them tracts and whatever. They get involved. That's what I'm talking about. I'm saying to you tonight that when a man has been born again, there is the proof that he's been born again. You don't have to wonder if somebody's saved. I mean, you look at their life. Now, it'll be something about your life that tells them that they're saved. And the concern for others is one of the evidences. Are you with me tonight? Four of you are, and I appreciate you four that are hanging with me. But let me give you the fourth and the final thing. You not only see the conviction that preceded her salvation and the confession that produced her salvation and the concern that proved her salvation, but I want you to look at the last thing, and I can't close without just saying a word about this, and that was the chord that pictured her salvation. You see, you'll notice in verse 18 and verse 15, 18, and 21, it talks about a particular object that was to be involved in her deliverance as well as her family's deliverance when judgment came on Jericho. In verse 18 and verse 21, it's called a line, L-I-N-E. In verse 18, it's called a thread. Now, he's talking about hanging a line out the window or hanging a thread out the window. Now, when you think of a thread, don't think of a thread as we think of. Verse 15, it is called a cord. That'll really give you the ideal. Or we would say today, a rope out the window. They said to her in verse 18 and verse 21 as well as verse 15, we want you to hang a scarlet rope out the window. Now, I want to just say a word about this scarlet rope because this scarlet rope is a picture of salvation I've talked about the conviction that preceded our salvation how God brought us to an understanding of our need and the things that God uses to bring us to an understanding of our need and the confession that simple act of faith in Christ just acknowledge him as Savior and Lord is all that it takes to be saved and the evidence of that being the concern that we have but here is a picture that God gave in fact you see the word line there the word line in the Hebrew language Was a metonymy. And a metonymy was when something pertaining to a subject is put in the place of that subject itself. In other words, when they told her to hang a line out the window, that line was to speak of something else, it was to be a token. She'd asked for a token, so they gave her a token, and they said, here's something's going to go out the window, but really it's going to go out the window in place of something else, or it's going to stand for something else. Now, what did that red rope stand for? Well, first of all, it stood for the way of salvation. It was a scarlet rope, a red rope. Now, you think we're just a moment? She said, I want a token. And the two spies said, I want you to hang a red rope out your window and whenever we come and whenever God gives us a city in our hand when we see that red rope we'll spare everyone in that house now why did they think of a red rope why did these men think of a red rope I don't know but can I give you my opinion I think the first thing they thought of was the Passover night in Egypt when God said to them, When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Now, this is my opinion. I can't prove this, and so don't take this as gospel. But I believe that that red rope or scarlet line was rope dipped, and dyed in blood. And they said, Hang this red rope out the window. Because that red rope will mean salvation to your house. It'll mean deliverance to you when the judgment comes. I want you to understand something tonight. It is by faith that we come to Christ. But the basis of our faith is this, that Jesus Christ, God's son, himself and shed his blood that we may have life what can wash away my sins nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood the way of salvation is through the blood but it not only spoke of the way of salvation but it also spoke about the work of salvation and we'll get to it on down the road but she hung that rope out the window a red rope out the window And whenever the city of Jericho fell, in my opinion, there was one little house standing on the wall that didn't fall. The walls fell flat, the Bible said. But I think there was one little house still standing when the walls fell down. And it was a house on the side of the wall with a red rope hanging out of it. In other words, when judgment came, she was spared from judgment because of that red rope. I want you to know something. The way of salvation is through the blood. But as Romans 5, 9 said, being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Look at me tonight. Look at me. Think about me any way you want to. Think of me any way you want to. But I want you to listen to me. I will not go to hell. I am not fearing hell. I'm not fearing the eternal lake of fire. I am not fearing the judgment of God. You'll know why? I've been justified by His blood. And because I've been justified by His blood, I have been delivered from the wrath to come. In other words, there's a scarlet line hanging in my soul tonight. You see salvation? The work of salvation saves you from the wrath to come. You see the word line there? Literally, the word means hope. They said to her, now this is what we want you to do. We want you to hang this out the window, but you're going to hang a rope out the window, but it's really it's going to be a rope, but really it's going to stand for something else. In other words, they said to her, hang this out because this is your hope. This is your only hope you don't have the rope hanging out, then your blood will not be on our hands. Your only hope when doom comes and your only hope when judgment comes is the red rope hanging out there. And then, can I pardon me for just maybe stretching the story a little bit, but I can see you rolling a rope out singing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and a righteousness. Are you listening to me? I'm glad one day God brought me to an understanding of my need. And I cried out to him and said, You are God, and I accept you as Lord, and he made me his child. And the evidence is there, and it's all based upon what Jesus Christ did for me. In other words, he was a lady that traded a red light for a red line. And the result is always the same. It is the story of the transformation Forming power of the gospel. Aren't you glad? Let's stand our feet, please. What a wonderful story that you have in Rahab. A lady that went from the house of shame to the hall of fame. A lady that replaced a red light with a red line. A lady that was the off-scour of the city, but she became an ancestor of the God-man. A lady that whose life was immoral but one day became and become and he is an example to every one of us in this room tonight. That's the transforming grace of God. I look around this room tonight and many of you are blessing and I see you sing and bless people's hearts. I see you work with kids and I see you work here and I see how God blesses your life and uses you but I remember what you were when you got saved. I remember how messed up you were and how how you had lived, but here you are today serving God and touching lives. What made the difference? It's Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the gospel. There may be someone here tonight in this service that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And maybe you're tonight and you say, Oh, Brother Ken, do you really, or do you really mean that Christ would do for me what he did For that harlot in Joshua 2, oh, absolutely, absolutely yes. And he changed her and transformed her. He can transform you tonight. Then for you in this room tonight that God brought you out of the gutter and saved you, don't lose the joy of what he's done for you. Remember how empty you were before you got saved. Remember how miserable you were before you got saved. Thank God for it and keep your heart soft and thrilled about what Jesus Christ has done for you. Father, tonight in Jesus' name, thank you for the wonderful illustration of the saving grace of God. What an amazing transformation took place in her life simply because she, one day she realized she was doomed. And she looked to God and she said, He is the Lord God. And That God became her God. And the evidence was there. Thank you for the picture you gave us of your salvation and how it's through the blood and that through the blood we're delivered from the wrath to come. For all these things we give you praise and we give you honor and we give you glory. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.